This week on the Saber.com podcast, a look back at basketball season, a look ahead at spring football with focus on the defensive backs, and a new twist in our Turning the Table segment. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, the Saber.com. Time again for another edition of the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host. We'll turn the tables at the end of the show and maybe not talking music this time. Uh, we might take a, a descent into the madness of this month of March. So we'll see how that goes. We definitely want to start with a year in review as far as the men's basketball program and a look ahead to what next year may have in store. We'll talk a little bit about spring football looking ahead. And there was a pro day this past week. We'll talk a little uh, defensive back information for you and that obviously one of the key areas for the who's coming up this year but we welcome in as always chris wright and chris horn and gentlemen what say you about the performance against ohio who seem to be everybody's darling upset pick this year the two words i would use are disappointing and frustrating disappointing because you always want virginia to go farther disappointing because you know ac regular season championship disappointing because of the circumstances surrounding the whole thing or maybe that goes in the frustrating category with you know limited practice and all that but yes ohio was a trendy upset pick i watched a lot of film on ohio so i was very frustrated watching the game because i thought they settled too much i suspect when they rewatch the game they're going to feel like they said uh, settled too much i would be surprised if any coaches or players watched back and said oh we would take all those shots again even though they got a lot of open shots 14 unguarded jump shots in the game uh, according to the synergy sports data so it's not like they didn't get open shot but i think if you went back and watched it as a player or as a coach with a little more critical eye you would land to the same place fans are which is frustrated that there wasn't more assertive assertiveness more attack mode um, at different points in that game i think the key stretch when they were up seven and then uh, Ohio got back into it. Some of the shot selection in there wasn't great. So yeah, fr- disappointing and frustrating, not alarming or, you know, soul searching for me. And, and maybe it's because I've coached for so long that you analyze it and you want, and you wonder, you know, could I do this or could I do that when you go back and watch your own games? But you know, there, there's no reason to burn down the whole thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they still win 75% of their games. They still are at the top of the ACC standings. They still are comparable to other teams. You know, everybody loves Syracuse because they win as a double digit seed or whatever. What I think is three of the last five NCAA tournaments they've won as the lower seed or something crazy like that. Well, the other two, they were ineligible and we're in the NIT. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's hit or miss value to kind of this time of year. Uh, Virginia does have some things to tweak and look at and analyze and uh, personnel will change and all of that. But yeah, definitely don't burn the whole thing down. Yeah, what about you, Chris Horn? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, frustrating is a good word. I mean, going back and rewatching it and even before, well, before the game, I had gotten in touch with Chris and just said, is it me or can Kihei Clark and Reese Beekman and whoever just basically drive at will and get to the basket? This would be a, a great opportunity for them to do that. And I think you saw it at spots in the game. And then you know, toward the end of the game, when they got a little bit, when Virginia was a little bit more uh, tenacious in terms of getting to the basket, obviously, and, you know, trying to rally mode, I feel like that should have, that was missing from the game uh, throughout. Cause I think they definitely had, uh, you know, you know, the guards, uh, Clark, Beekman, uh, and Morsell when he's in there, Morsell, I think, can has shown he can get to the basket. They had plenty of opportunities to just continue to drive to the basket and, and try to finish. Obviously, finishing has been an issue, but I think they could have – Ohio doesn't have a consistent shot-blocking threat. So that was frustrating for me that they – especially, you know, when I, when I look at Beekman, I mean, any for me, like any time Preston was on, say, Beekman or Clark, I would have – given them the basketball and let them drive to the basket. Cause I don't think Preston is a good, a really good defender. And I think, uh, you know, Beekman's got that speed and quickness to get by him and, and, and to be able to finish at the basket. So that was, that was frustrating. And, you know, for me, it just kind of came down. Uh, I mean, obviously if, you know, you, you look at the shots, Chris mentioned the 14 open shots, I think in that second half stretch when UVA was up 38, 31, um, Virginia got open shots, but of course they were the, you know, maybe the guys that you'd, 
that Ohio wants shooting those open shots uh, in, in many occasions, Clark, Beekman, Morsell, but then, you know, even that trickle down to Hauser missing an open three, Jay Huff was kind of off all night. So, you know, Kihei Clark had numerous open shots. If they could have just gotten a few to fall, I think they could have easily pulled away in that game. Uh, so that's definitely frustrating. I think when you see a game that looking back, it's like, why did not, why did Virginia not win that game? I mean, I think, you, you look at the schedule that they had, you know, coming in with the COVID protocols and everything, and then flying to Indianapolis and then having the 1.15 a.m. Uh, test, second round of testing. You know, it was, it was a whirlwind for sure, I think. So I think that prop, that had something to do, especially with the, the shooting. But again, I, I wish they would have been more aggressive from start to finish and trying to uh, penetrate, create some opportunity. I think the, I think the referees were, you know, they were going to call some fouls. I think there was a chance that Virginia could have, drove consistently they would have gotten to the line more and uh you know just get a couple as ohio is not a deep team so get uh you know some of their big men in in foul trouble then you know uva's really got a a much easier pass so definitely a lot of missed opportunities unfortunately you know ohio played okay but i think it was definitely one that you know virginia missed on as far as being able to advance you know i don't think this team would have gone past the sweet 16 honestly but i think they certainly had the chance you know, to make it to a Sweet 16, which is disappointing. Yeah, amen to basically all the things you guys have been saying. And and it is frustrating when normally those lower-seeded teams that, that beat the favorite, normally they play out of their mind or they have one guy that goes off and then the other, the higher seed plays well under their their average. And that certainly was the case with with UVA. I didn't feel like Ohio played that great, like, like you guys are saying. And then, you know, two days later, they get beat up pretty good by, by Creighton. So... Yeah, I don't think Ohio was a, a defensive powerhouse by any means. A lot of a lot of open looks that uh, that got missed. So, a missed opportunity. But you know, overall, guys, what would you say in terms of year in review and and looking back, Chris Wright, you already kind of alluded to it a little bit ago with uh, you know regular season title, and uh, maybe we can look ahead to what's in store with some of the moves. It's hard to predict with the the transfer rules changing, but. Uh, what are you thinking there, Chris Wright, looking back on this season? Hard to predict. That is an understatement of all understatements for this <laughs> offseason, right? Because the, the the transfer rule is going to go away. You're going to get a free one-time transfer. Everyone has a free year, in theory, eligibility-wise. So, um, yeah, hard to predict. I do think Coach Bennett said on his coaches show that he doesn't expect any seniors back, but I think he told them that maybe they have a spot if they want it. I don't think any of those three will return, though, in terms of the scholarship guys. So, yeah, that part is interesting. It is hard to predict. For me, like, what's in- the most interesting to me is this year has felt disconnected in a lot of ways. Um, whether that's basketball or otherwise. I think that was especially true for Virginia fans watching this Virginia basketball team. And I've mentioned that on the podcast several times. Virginia fans were frustrated with this team because it wasn't it wasn't vintage Virginia. It wasn't recognizable in terms of wearing teams down. It wasn't recognizable in terms of a balanced kind of approach. It wasn't recognizable in long-term people in the program other than Clark and uh, Huff, who have been here for so long, and obviously Morsell is, is working his way through being here long term. The all the other pieces, Hauser, Murphy, Walta, Tensai, were were incomers, right? That may be the wave of the future with the way things are going. So we'll see how the program looks in the future. But with what Virginia fans identified with over the last six years, seven years of elite basketball, uh, 2014 ACC tournament champions, the the original rise, all the way through the COVID canceled year, it looked a certain way. It, it, it flowed a certain way. There was a certain identity to it. And this team didn't fit that mold. And that's okay. Not every team you're going to have is going to do that. But in terms of fans being frustrated with it, it wasn't a defensive lock you down and do your thing. It certainly wasn't that. And it wasn't as balanced offensively. So the team was good. It in some ways maybe maximized. And I know a lot of people are having trouble with that, like feeling like the team did not maximize. But they won the ACC regular season title with some very clear flaws in a very weird year in a down ACC. That's got to gotta be stated. So, you know, did they maximize? Were they a Sweet 16 team? Maybe. So maybe only the postseason didn't maximize. Certainly the ACC tournament didn't maximize because you didn't get a chance to, um, but that was kind of out of their control. So, you know, preseason top 10, postseason they're going to be top 20 or 25-ish. If you were to redo a poll, even though they lost in the first round, they would still be hovering in that top 15, 20, 25, 30, somewhere in there um, in terms of rankings. In terms of data, 
they still are hanging around top 20 and Ken Palm and all of that metric stuff. They kind of are what they are somewhere on the verge of a sweet 16 team. So that was potent potential to be upset on any given game because they had flaws. When I look back at, it, I think fans have a hard time identifying with this team. When you look ahead and it's so hard to predict, it's hard to predict how fans will start identifying if it becomes a transfer world. Um, even though Virginia's had some success with that, they do need kind of the backbone people to develop. And that means Morcel, that means uh, Clark in his final year, that means Beekman, that means McCoy, Abdur Rahim, McCorkle, some of these guys need to develop within the program for it to stay the way it has been. And that right now is really hard to predict how that's going to look. Yeah, Chris Horn, uh, looking at KenPalm.com here, it has Virginia still at 16 uh, heading into this weekend's games. So what's your assessment of the, the past and the future? <laughs> the same time go <laughs> i mean i, th I think uh yeah i mean we definitely came a long way from the the first you know the, the season opener when we were predicting or not we but uh some were predicting final four championship you know fresh off of that performance i mean looking back i mean when you look at the flaws and as, as good a defensive backcourt as the as you know especially reese bigman man i think he and chris has mentioned many times i mean he he just turned into such a great defender i think that that's exciting looking forward looking down the road or you know next year and in, in the future with him assuming he can develop his offensive game a little bit but you know i don't think we saw kihei clark necessarily having the drop off uh that he was going to have from an offensive standpoint. And, you know, what that, that, that kind of surprised me a little bit because he's a guy, you know, uh, Kihei is a guy with that, the toughness and the metal and, and, you know, he stepped up last year. And so I was kind of surprised toward the end of the year when, and I think it was a confidence issue when he lost, lost confidence in his shot. I think we saw that he was kind of reluctant on, on occasion to take his shot. And, you know, so he was inconsistent throughout the whole year. Obviously, Casey Morsell from an offensive standpoint didn't take that next step. So when you consider what, the backcourt was like and and we you know I think you hear all the time especially in postseason play how important guard play is so but so when you t factor that in the fact that they were able to win uh the ACC regular season championship and and hey they didn't lose a game in the ACC tournament either but uh, uh you know the fact that they were able to win a, an ACC regular season championship even you know obviously as Chris mentioned the ACC was definitely down this year but the way they did it to have a kind of a surprise opportunity and then go on the road and beat a pretty solid Louisville team at Louisville the way they did. I think that's something that's definitely significant. And I think, again, when you, when you don't have, when you don't have consistent backcourt play and in, in terms of scoring is what I'm talking about, because I think the defense was there, then, you know, it's tough for the, you know, I think the front court guys to, to carry the load. The team just kept sagging, making Clark and Beekman make the plays, and they were focusing on Murphy, Hauser, and Huff uh, primarily. That's just tough to do. I mean, you, you got to make some shots. Again, if Kihei Clark just makes a couple of those shots, if he's if he's right from the outside against Ohio, I think Virginia moves on pretty easily. I mean, because he, he had many open shots as well. So, you know, given that the lack of offense from the backcourt, you know, I think it was a pretty good season. Obviously, you want to see them go a little bit further in the in the tournament, especially with a winnable game like they had against Ohio. But you know, I think that was there were some good accomplishments certainly, especially you know with that ACC regular season title. But looking looking ahead towards next year is going to be uh, interesting because where is the scoring going to come again? I mean, there's no proven backcourt score coming back, so that's definitely a, a, a big question mark heading into next season and. Who knows what's going to happen with the transfer portal and, you know, Trey Murphy you know, looking at the NBA. So, uh, you know, from Coach Bennett's coaches show, doesn't sound like he really necessarily has a grasp at this point of what his team's going to look like uh, totally. So a lot of questions to be answered for sure, um, you know, especially leading with uh, are they going to find a guy who can score consistently in the backcourt? Yeah, that's the hottest topic on the message board is we, we don't know who's coming in. We don't know who's going out. Uh, if anyone would declare for the transfer portal, it's certainly possible. Will Murphy declare for the NBA? One thing I think we do know is Clark and Beekman are going to be back. Clark and Beekman starting together in the backcourt is the hot button topic on the message board right now. And probably all of the fan base, social media, text messages, like all that stuff. Can those two play together in the backcourt and be successful if there's no front court shooting now either? So that that's the million dollar question with what will the roster makeup look like uh, etc. The reason they were playing together is Clark is your most experienced and your best creator, at least this season. Now, Beekman can become a creator, and I was actually a little surprised he didn't create more than he did. 
put that aside. Clark was the best creator this year and his assist to turnover ratio was up in part because he had better finishers around him. Okay. But his assist turnover ratio was up. Beekman was the best perimeter defender on the roster. It's not close <laughs> to me. Like he's better than Clark. He's better than Marcel. He's better than Walter Tensai. Okay. He just is. And that's why he was starting at the two guard, because I think as a coach, and this is not something that fans have touched on very much, but I think as a coach, you look at it and go, what do I need the most for this team to be successful? Scoring would not have been anyone's first instinct in November. That's not what anybody would have said. They would have said, okay, like who's the fire blanket? Who's the defensive stopper? Who's who someone can lock someone up on the other team's perimeter. Because, oh, look at all the scoring we've got. We got Kihei Clark. He led the team last year. He can do this. And, and Murphy and Hauser and Huff. And da, da. So it, even as a coach, you look at it and go, okay, we have lots of weapons. What do we need? Like somebody to like lock in, play defense. Well, Beekman emerged as that guy. So then once you kind of established that and the offense fell off, do you, what do you do? Do you, do you pull your defensive stopper? Do you pull Clark? Do you, do you seesaw the two? And how does that look different with the, with different personnel around them next year? To me, the, the, Everything about next year starts there. How do you combine those two? The one main thing from me that I've said all season long, I would have liked to see more ball screens for more people. So instead of just Clark and Huff, I would have liked to see more Hauser using a Huff screen, more Beatman and Clark using ball screens within the same possession, um, that sort of thing. If they're going to play together, Coach Bennett and company need to figure out a way to put more ball screens in for both of them as often as possible because that plays to both of their strengths versus having them play off the ball so much or be spot-up shooters so much because that does not play to their strengths currently. And they're only going to improve that incrementally, I would think. Going up a cliff (laughs) on those doesn't seem likely to me. So I think that is kind of the number one thing. How How do those two players work together better and how do the pieces around them fit in after you answer that question? I'm anxious to see Kihei Clark's role next year. Cause I think I, you know, this is not based on necessarily any in-depth statistics, but I felt like Reese Beekman was better when he had the ball in his hands as kind of like a primary point guard type. And to me, you know, obviously he's kind of the, you know, he's the, he's the future guy that's going to be, you know, the, the kind of London Parentes, Ty Jerome type, I think. So what happens next season? Now, Kihei Clark obviously is a point guard as well. And heading into this year, I would say he was probably the better off the ball in terms of a guy who could, he, what was he like, say 37% from three last year or, or pretty, you know, solid this year, obviously that went down. Uh, but he's shown the ability to hit the open three, which again, that, you know, he struggled with that toward the end of this season. So I'm anxious to see what's going to happen next year in terms of who's going to be the guy, you know, obviously, you know, the initial guy kind of being the primary point guard and how Coach Bennett handles that. And if they bring somebody else in who's kind of like a combo guard who can score, uh, what does that look like as well? And we have some other pieces, obviously, we still have to figure out. But, you know, that's that's what's going to be interesting for me, how that how Coach Bennett handles, you know, the Bennett and or the Beekman, Kihei Clark scenario. The difference between point guard platoons of the past and the point guard platoon of this year is that one of them could always spot up. So when you had Brogdon and Perantes together, Perantes could really spot up and shoot. Brogdon grew into that as well. When you had Jerome and Clark together, or even Jerome and, and Perantes together, or Devin Hall and Perantes together, like one of those players could always spot. This year, this combination of combo two point guards at once, neither one of them were consistent or good at doing that. So it was like the things that we're used to doing with this kind of combo thing weren't working. They, they, they adjusted. Don't get me wrong. There were plenty of adjustments happening throughout the season. Now they were micro, not macro adjustments, but they still were happening. Now that you have a, a, a season's worth of data to look at and an off season to plan, how do they take those two combo point guards together? That, that's a huge question to me. It's not as simple as, Oh, we've always played two point guards together. <laughs> These two don't, <laughs> don't fit quite the same as a Parantes Brogdon or a Jerome Clark fit together. Yeah, for sure. And um, strategy aside, it, I just enjoyed some of my most enjoyable moments of the year were when Huff was almost used as like a, a point forward or whatever. I don't know the the terminology, but like he'd be at the the top of the key or, you know, even at the high post and here he is seven one. He's got the, he's, the guy on him is significantly shorter in a lot of cases. He's looking around. Boom. That's where you'd have Murphy or Beekman or somebody gliding in on the baseline and getting easy easy looks at the basket. I, I enjoyed his, his passing at times. We didn't do it a whole lot, but um, 
you know, obviously he's on to bigger and better things, hopefully. Um, like you say, Chris Wright, he could always come back and use that extra year, but five years is probably, probably plenty for Jay. I could understand him wanting to move on, but you've seen a team like Loyola Chicago. They've got the six, nine guy who is kind of their point guard. Like he makes that whole team run because he's such a great passer and that, that, uh, you know, you've got the Joker in the NBA and, and people, uh, like that, that maybe that'll be uh, a role that Jay can use to his, uh, his benefit in his, in his future basketball career. We'll see. But um, other memorable things, uh, let's talk about Hauser too. Is he the greatest one-year player in UVA history? I mean, we, UVA fans, I feel like we just, we wanted to see him for, for more than just the one year. It, circumstances didn't work out that way, of course, but I was thinking my immediate reaction when he only, he only hit the one three, I think against Ohio, I was like, man, that must've been his only game where he did that. He actually did have a few of those games sprinkled throughout the season. Uh, San Francisco, I think, and Georgia Tech. Um, there were a couple others. So that was a little surprising to me when I looked back because he had such a great stretch there the last month of the, the season. So, but overall, I, you know, he as being a competitor, he wanted to beat his old AAU buddy so bad. <laughs> and maybe that's why he was a little off shooting. But man, what a what an interesting you know, March dynamic to that game with uh, the Bennett connection there to the the two families between those two teams. There's at least some murmurs on the message board that Hauser might entertain coming back, but I, I don't. Yeah, I don't he never see got it, to but... play in front of a JPJ crowd. I mean, it just just a bummer. <laughs> I think you can convince yourself some reasons why he would come back. Yeah, but I look at it and I'm going, like, what well, what's the benefit? You know, like like what what for him would change with another year here other than maybe college experience wise, but this is not a 20 year old. This is a 23 right. year old, 24 year old. At some point you feel more grown up than the the first years around you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I think earnings clock, and I've said this several times throughout the season, you, you need to start your earnings clock. There is a finite amount of time that you can make money playing basketball, whether that's here in the United States or elsewhere in the world, you know, if you say even generously that maybe you can play to 40, you know, that's a, that's a set amount of time. Now, right now your, your earnings clock is at 17 years. Do you want to shorten it to 16? And that's assuming you can play to 40. Yeah. I think he and Huff need to, to start that earnings clock. He had a great season here. You know, I can't think of many one year players for Virginia. So I think if you look at it that way, in terms of one year players, he certainly was a great one year player. He did a lot of things that were impressive throughout the year, that mid range, mid post area was as good as Mike Scott statistically was that year. So yeah, I mean, great, great year for him. He's not the, the biggest question for me in terms of, of should they come back or are they coming back? And, and it's a non-senior that fits that for me. And we can talk about that in a couple of minutes, but I don't know what you thought of Hauser's year. I thought he was just rock solid and I don't know where they would have been without him. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of games he took over and it, without, without him taking over, they would have lost the game. So I think, uh, yeah, no, I think he played, he played solid. I thought his defense, I thought he maximized his defense, um, you know, improved throughout the season. Unfortunately, overran his AAU pal at the end of the first half and, and, you know, gave him an open three, but that aside, I thought, yeah, solid leadership guy. You know, I think he, he, you know, he wasn't the fiery guy, you know, we're used to, I think having some fiery guys out there, especially like, you know, Ty Jerome and, and some of those other guys. So he wasn't that, but he was definitely a leader in, uh, in other ways, positive guy, keeping the team up and uh, you know, his just a, a ability to take over a game, certainly won a few games. So it was, it, you know, obviously it would have been cool to see him play in front of the JPJ crowd. Uh, but yeah, like Chris said, I think, he and Huff. And it sounds like, as Chris said earlier, that, you know, from what Coach Bennett says, that he expects probably Walt Atensai may move on as well. So it doesn't sound like any of the three seniors who would be allowed back uh, because of the COVID rules. doesn't sound like any of those are probably coming back. Well, and I think it says a lot too. Sam was the one player chosen to speak after the game. And he, part of his comments was congratulating the, the women's swimming and diving team on their first ever national championship. So classy move there and just being aware of that you know in terms of his school pride and and everything even even though he's only here two years well and speaking of earnings clock chris horn you, what do you think of murphy's chances of coming back i feel like he had a really solid year i mean jumped right in from game one and was in the starting lineup so yeah i mean um it was interesting i mean he came to virginia wanting actually a redshirt year uh, for development to get stronger um improve his defense and things like that so uh, and then obviously, you know, was able to get a waiver and play immediately. So things worked out differently. And now here we are. He's a, a potential 
uh, NBA, uh, you know, prospect off the NBA. I'm not sure, you know, I mean, obviously he was a good player coming in. I'm not sure if that necessarily was on his radar uh, coming in. It'd be interesting to talk to him about that. But, but yeah, now that's definitely like a, a serious consideration. You know, from my standpoint, I think he's a guy who, you know, if he stays at Virginia, does kind of what his initial plan was, gets stronger, comes back, can be a, a, a you know, more of a focal point of the offense, not just necessarily threes, but maybe a DeAndre Hunter type in terms of being able to be moved around. You know, we saw him on the elbow uh, getting the ball a few times, and he was pretty successful against Louisville with that. Um, and I think there are areas where he can certainly improve strength, uh, ball handling, you know, taking guys off the dribble, getting to the basket, uh, you know, defense as well. But, you know, he's 6'9", he's obviously can shoot the three, has, has terrific rise, athleticism, is long obviously a high on potential there. I've seen second round, which, you know, in the past, I would be like, well, why would you, why would you just not come back to Virginia? You have a NBA quality coach that you can learn from legendary coach and coach Bennett, uh, Mike Curtis, uh, working with those guys. And then to me, there is a benefit in being the focal point next year, more of a focal point, more of a bigger role that maybe he was not used to. But I know Chris, you had some interesting points as far as NBA and, and you know, how things may be changing as far as like, uh, you know, maybe it's not just first round or bust. So it certainly sounds like it could go either way um, at this point. I think starting from the beginning, he should absolutely declare for the NBA yeah. draft. He should absolutely put his name in, get the the scale feedback, and that's written. You know what I mean? Like, so not an NBA player, marginal, you know, whatever. It's like a five-category thing. Absolutely should get that feedback from the written kind of committee that's designed to do that. See if he can get any workouts or if the NBA combine fits into the calendar stuff. I don't know how they're going to do that. See if he gets an invite there and then make a decision. Right. So just start from there. Yes. Put your name in the draft. You should. There's no reason not to. It's free feedback. Why would you not do that? Right. So start from there. Yes, you should do that. From there, it becomes kind of where do you project? What does that feedback say? And for me, it's all about the second contract in terms of first round or bust. Lately in the NBA, if you're a top 40 pick ish, you get a guaranteed contract. It's not just if you're the 28th into the first round pick, you could be 34th, 35th, 37th you know, early second round and still get a guaranteed contract. It might be a two-way contract. It could be a variety of things, but it's not quite the same as it was, say, 10 years ago when guys were declaring early. You know what I mean? Like you can get feedback and withdraw now. You can get guaranteed money at the start of the second round. So it's a little different equation than before. Is this similar to a Ty Jerome, Justin Anderson situation? Meaning, are you going to improve your stock or not based on coming back? So in other words, if you're a between 20 and 28th pick, like both, both of those guys ended up as seems like pretty much like a no brainer, right? Like it becomes more about, are you 25, 28 down to 40? Are you in that window? So can you move from the late first round, early second round window to mid first round? I don't think you can get to hundred territory lottery. If he came back and did that, then call me on it a year from now. Um, I don't think he can get to lottery pick territory based on what I've seen currently. So it's more about how much can you improve your stock marginally around the margins to get to early 20s, late teens type of pick, which is a different kind of guaranteed contract uh, than early second round. So with all of that said, I still think it's about the second contract. Once you start your time in the NBA developmental system, there's only so much patience for you. They're not going to wait on you forever to develop. So a year with Mike Curtis, a year of being a focal point, all of that's true. All of that holds water. He will improve while he's here. He will also improve if he goes the pro route. There's not a, a right or wrong answer here. They also have strength trainers that are really good. They also have people dedicated to developing you. The question becomes about three years from now, after that first two, three-year rookie contract, then what? Did you develop enough? They thought you're a three and D player, and now you're still a marginal three and D player. You didn't show anything else because they didn't let you. Virginia's going to use you differently, allow you to show different things. What's your development look like? It's going to happen in either scenario. What does the second time through look like? Year three, year four, when you're looking for another contract, are you still a fringe G League player? Are you a two-way two player like Kyle Guy is? Are you, are you more than that? It's hard to project three or four years down the road for anybody. 
for anybody, but particularly a, a guy who just grew, who still needs to put on strength, predicting three years from now is hard. So he, he's got a hard decision to make. And I think rather than just make it, he should declare, evaluate the feedback, evaluate who else is in the draft. He can hire an agent. He, he can have an agent through this process now. That's different than it was, you know, several years ago. So yeah, he, he's going to have an opportunity to get information to evaluate. I don't think it's obvious right now. And I think it's more about contract two than contract one. Because if, he, if he's a second round pick in the, the 40 and up range, he's going to get a guaranteed contract either way, uh, the way things have generally been working. Well, and it's a different world too, isn't it, guys? He, just in the past five, six, seven years, you've got, you know, Luca down there doing his thing with the Dallas Mavericks. And he was playing professionally, I think, 16, 17. I mean, he gets drafted as like a 19-year-old or whatever, and he's fully formed, ready to just take over the entire league. There was a guy drafted in the most recent draft who I think was 18 or 19 out of Israel. So you're competing in terms of being drafted against guys from all over the world. These leagues are getting better and better in other parts of the world. You know, in the NBA's investing in Africa. There, there's Australian leagues. I mean – Lamelo Ball, like he started pretty much, he knew from day one he wasn't going to go the college route. So now he's what Coach Bennett always says of the year. So what Coach Bennett always says is that there are only so many superstars, right? Durant, Irving, LeBron James, Anthony Davis. There are only so many of those types. Sure. Everybody else in the in the NBA is sticking for some other reason. Either they're a specialist that can really do something great or they're so efficient and good at everything that they stick. Justin Anderson hasn't been able to stick. He doesn't have one thing that he can hang his hat on and he's not collectively good enough at all the things to stick. That isn't a knock on Justin Anderson. He made the NBA. <laughs> like This is a great <laughs> basketball player. We're just talking about this is, this is the league in the world. You have to be you have to be something, right? Like, yeah. so you get like a Duncan Robinson with the heat when they made the run to the finals last year that, you know, can flat out shoot it and, and creates gravity and all that sort of stuff. It took Joe Harris forever to become that, even though he's leading the, uh, the NBA in three point percentage since 2017 combined or something like that. <laughs> like he wasn't that at first he was cut. He was done. <laughs> right. He had to work all the way back to becoming that. And he's not just a three point shooter, even though that's his specialty. He's really good at a lot of other things. Yeah. So yeah, that's what Trey Murphy's evaluating. Like, am I just a three point specialist three and D I can switch a lot on defense and that's the way I stick. Or do I need to collectively get better at a lot of all around things so that they add to that specialty, that, that flat out ability to shoot it. Right. He's got to evaluate that. And I mean, Coach Bennett knows, like, it's hard. It's hard to make the NBA. You've got to be really good at a lot of things. You are not You are not LeBron James. You are not <laughs> Steph Curry, right? Like, there's only so many of those guys. Everybody else is in a battle, as you just said, from all around the world to fill those other limited spots. So I think you've got to be really well-rounded or you've got to be so stinking good at one thing just to stick. Well, and the Anthony Gill story, too, Chris Horn, you know, mm -hmm. to see him go overseas for a couple years – you know, start a family even. And like, he's, it's like, right. you think, oh, maybe he'll just stay in Russia, but he comes back, gets a spot and he's on the Washington Wizards now. So that's been pretty cool too, to see guys like that. Yeah. I mean, if you're willing to put in the time and and stick with it, I think, you know, these guys have, uh, uh, you know, Joe Harris. And I think that says something about the character that they had and, and coach Bennett, um, you know, finding great character guys that they, you know, they stuck with it and, uh, you know, they're with their work ethic, they've been able to develop into where they are now. So, you know, to, to Chris's point, you know, there's not a whole lot of patience <laughs> in, in the NBA. So it'll be interesting. But yeah, I mean, certainly Trey, I, I'd be shocked if he didn't go in the NBA draft process. I mean, that seems like a no brainer for sure. And definitely good luck to him. But it's just interesting comparing that. And if he does go, what does Virginia look like? next year there is it's gonna be uh, uh very interesting and then uh, you know lots of transfers out there but you know, this Tane Murray guy better be good huh <laughs> <laughs> speaking of prospects from down under right <laughs> a future episode yes we'll talk to we'll talk about that later but uh we definitely want to get into uh to spring football and maybe a little uh defensive back discussion next here on the saber.com podcast it's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, thesaber.com. All right, segment number two here on the saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn from thesaber.com. And uh, 
What do you think, guys? We've got a date or two to look forward to here uh, in terms of the football calendar for the Who's uh, Pro Day this past week. And we still need to talk about the defensive backs as it relates to this past season and what we can look ahead to uh, for this year. Chris Horn, you want to take that one first? It, it was cool to see Hassis Dubois get a get a, a full pro day. Um, you know, and who knows? I think maybe, uh, obviously, I think a lot of people, including myself, were surprised that he didn't get a, a, a chance last year to, you know, maybe go to a camp and show his stuff. But, you know, having a year to train and kind of get your body right after college and, you know, maybe that's, you know, his hands are going to still be there. So he, uh, that's going to, you know, maybe it'll turn out to be a blessing in disguise for him. So I'm hoping he gets a shot. I'm anxious to see, you know, one guy, who, an under-the-radar guy, Shane Simpson. You know, I think he ran like a 4-4-40. Obviously, he was coming off a knee injury at UVA, still performed well. So, you know, I'm anxious to see how he's going to uh, shake out there in the pros. I think he's going to be – he could be an under-the-radar under guy who could stick. And then, of course, Charles Snowden, you know, continues to impress with, you know, how he's handling his injury situation. But – you know, just some of the things that we that that he you know, he's learning, you know, four three terminology, you know, and preparing for you know the NFL in case you know as people you know in case certain schemes and, and coaches ask him about that, and you know he looks <laughs> he's he's got that uh, a leg injury, but he's he looks like he's gotten a lot stronger and, and bigger uh, upper body. So you know it'll be it'll be interesting, but those are kind of some notables uh, for me. And then as as far as defensive backs, you know, starting that conversation. You know, I think Virginia got a pretty pretty good boost as far as bringing back some consistency when uh, Joey Blount and Nick Grant and Devontae Cross um, announced that they're coming back uh, for next season. So that gives guy you know gives the program guys who are experienced guys in the in the system. They know the system. They know what to expect. It's just really about how good can they you know find the right mesh and how you know what's the upside. I think. Joey Blount got off to a great start last year at safety. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to stay healthy, which has kind of been an issue for him. So if he's able to come back, though, and play consistently from start to finish like he did last year, uh, like he started off last year, that could be pretty pretty significant. You know, Nick Grant, I think, is a solid corner. He's a good athlete, has pretty good size. You know, I wouldn't say great, but solid corner. Again, it gives you some stability. Devontae Cross, a guy who I think is better as a safety, so it'll be interesting to see uh, if they move him back and maybe move Anthony Johnson, who's the grad transfer from Louisville, into a cornerback spot to give, you know, that's that's a good upper-class feel. And then hope, hopefully some of these younger guys that have been in the program several years, Antonio Clary at safety, uh, Fentrell Cypress at cornerback, or, or a few guys that kind of stick out to me, maybe they take that next step, and, and maybe those are guys who can be real difference makers looking into next year. But definitely – you know, especially coming off the past year and a half or so, has not been super kind to defensive backs. You know, they've given up a lot of big plays. That's going to be an area that, you know, Virginia is going to have to uh, improve in next year for their defense to be better. Yeah, what are your prospects there, uh, Chris Wright, in terms of the secondary? It's an interesting question, you know, because you have a lot of experienced names in there. They obviously struggled. <laughs> um I don't think that's unfair to say. And I think it's been talked a lot about, you know, over the course of the, of the last couple of months leading into spring football, but they are experienced. So what, what do you do with that? Do you use it full time and ride your experience, try to get things reset? Do you use it as sort of like a, an anchoring spot, but you don't play them all the snaps all the time. So maybe you mix and match and blend and do all those sorts of things to get guys experience without them all having to get it at once, meaning the younger guys. Are you essentially like stop gapping? In other words, maybe you, you don't think those guys are ready. So this gives them some time. You shuffled the coaching staff some to, to help with the defensive backs in the secondary. So do, does having experience there kind of help the transition of coaching staff shuffle and kind of set set things anew there so that so that's interesting the louisville transfer is interesting in terms of an experienced guy because he's listed as a junior on virginia's roster which means two years so you could easily go with him as a starter at corner for two years and give somebody behind grant time you know in certain situations to figure things out and then move cross to safety and, and create a safety rotation similar to what they did this year with Nelson, before he got hurt, um, Blunt, and D'Angelo Amos, who, who transferred in for one year, obviously. So a three-man rotation at safety is pretty common in this system. Just how do you piece all of this together? But I think because they took the grad transfer Johnson, 
he's got to be kind of into the the equation here. I think you don't take him uh, without plans to to play him, at least based on how Coach Mendenhall always talks about grad transfers or transfers in general. We don't like to take them unless there's an obvious need for them. That tells me that they think they need Anthony Johnson to play um, and then kind of work backwards from there. Where do guys like Cohen King, who played a lot late in the year, fit into this in addition to those younger guys that Chris mentioned? Well, one other thing, you know, the, the coaching shuffle. So now we have Brumfield uh, helping out with cornerbacks and uh, Shane Hunter moving from inside linebackers to safeties. Uh, previously, Coach Howell had been the defensive coordinator and the, and the defensive backs coach. And he's st- I believe he's still like an overseer. Uh, he's still listed as a defensive backs coach. So clearly, you know, Coach Mendenhall is addressing that position. So how how's that going to benefit, you know, looking towards next year? I think, you know, having a spring football is going to be big. So, I mean, I, it'll be interesting to see how um, how this stuff helps as far as that, that unit uh, looking towards next year. Any uh, key dates for fans to keep an eye out for on the football horizon here, guys? Yeah, it's, it's a Jimmy Buffett spring, Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> That was one of the album names for Jimmy Buffett, I, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday starting March the 30th all the way through May the 1st. That adds up to 15 practices. And that's significant. You know, that one thing they talked about going into last kind of off season was needing to – I remember Coach Papinga saying it explicitly, we need to, to develop people in the, in the defensive backfield. There was no spring, and then it was accelerated in the summer and socially distanced. So I think that has to be – the number one thing, the secondary has to get better for this program to go anywhere. Otherwise, you're going to be kind of a middle of the pack, ACC coastal chaos type of team because you can't rely on getting pressure all the time. Sometimes you just need your defensive backs to allow pressure to occur, right? And this past year, that just didn't happen. They were giving up big plays left and right. Very few havoc plays from the secondary um, in terms of breakups and interceptions and things like that. So yeah, this is the question. Uh, for the program right now, and and really maybe for the program's long-term health and stability and success under Mendenhall, right now it looks like the secondary is the question <laughs> to me. Like now they've shown the ability to plan and 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 slot things and get things set up. We saw that with quarterback and offensive line, which were both a disaster when Virginia took over. The secondary is nowhere near where those two positions were when those guys took over in terms of numbers, in terms of experience, in terms of having to bring bodies in constantly, that this is not the same as there. And they proved they could grow those positions up. They're just doing that from a little later starting point, but a better starting point um, in the secondary, but it is the, the position to me. Yeah. And I mean, from a recruiting standpoint, I, you know, I think that clearly the best, Secondary guys that have been in the program under Coach Mendenhall have been Juan Thornhill and Bryce Hall, who were both rec- recruited by um, Mike London. So uh, that kind of goes to recruiting and, and identifying the, you know, the the right guys and developing those guys. And uh, you know, there there are definitely some promising guys. I'm not trying to say say that, but it's going to be telling this coming season and in the next season, you know, guys like Donovan Johnson, um, you know, safety, um, Elijah Gaines, who saw some playing time at cornerback last year, you know, those guys I think are going to have to, it would be nice definitely to see some uh, real development. Um, and those guys really emerge as, as big time playmakers. Cause they definitely, that's, that is the one position, as you mentioned, Chris, that they need, uh, need, need that is the secondary. Interesting tug of war here between what, what to do. Experience, Blunt, Cross, Grant, Bratton, incoming transfer Johnson, all a lot of experience. And up and comers, Elijah Gaines, Finchell Cypress. Johnson saw a little bit of early time. At one point, White saw a little bit of early time. Where does it all fit? Where does, uh, where does that tug of war work out? And how do you kind of finesse it, right, to get the most out of both, but also grow the position for long term? So, yeah, fascinating, and it'll be interesting to watch how uh, Coach Mendenhall and company go about it. Well, and like we've talked about previously, got to score points in today's uh, modern college football world. Uh, high-flying offenses like Clemson and North Carolina at the top of uh, the ACC. So it's not an enviable position. It might be the hardest position in football. What do you guys think? Cornerback? Being stuck out there on an island trying to <laughs> defend? Cornerback especially. Ooh. The guy on the field side, the – Basically, the whole route tree is open is the way those guys put it. When you're out there on the wide side, 
that dude could run any pattern. <laughs> you know, that, that's a hard job, particularly with the rules now and, and how much contact you're allowed to make and hand fighting. And, it, you know, that stuff tends to, to, to tilt toward the offense. If there's hand fighting going on, the flag rarely goes against the offensive guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah, the, the field corner in particular is really hard. The boundary corner is hard for different reasons. You know, you got to stick your nose in there and uh, set the edge sometimes and do things like that. But, yeah, not, not an easy job, but it is an extremely important one. Well, very good. We'll uh, turn the tables up next. And even I'm not sure what that means this week on the Sabre.com podcast. Stay tuned to find out. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to, to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody is included, and that's really what the word community is about, you know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and, and participate and add something. All right, welcome back to the Sabre.com podcast. I editor Chris Wright in the driver's seat for our last segment. We call it the Turning the Table segment. We have frequently been doing that on the music front because that's kind of just background, but we thought we would start changing it up a little bit and do different things, uh, not just music, and just tie it into other things that our fans might be interested in. So right now, what is everybody interested in? Well, at least until you know, the Ohio loss was the NCAA tournament, but that's part of what like kind of sticks with fans, right? I've seen a lot of what I will call rants on the message board with fans, the airing of the grievances, uh, <laughs> Festivus in March. There's a lot of that that goes on when your team loses, not just Virginia fans, anybody's fans. Everybody. You wonder what Kansas fans are saying right now, for example. So yes. if you haven't lost yet, you're, you're still there, but I, I think you said descending into the madness has led you to sort of a rant of sorts. So we're turning the tables and saying, what's on your mind, Jeff? Yes, pretty much exactly what you're saying there, uh, Chris. The madness of the month of March can be maddening. And uh, it pretty much is for every fan base, even the Blue Bloods who know that they're going to be in the mix every year, except this year, looking at you, Kentucky and Duke and Louisville. But uh, it's just a matter of how far they'll go, right? Every year they look forward to challenging for that national title. And like I said, as you guys may remember from uh, last week, I predicted this bubble environment and uh, less fans in attendance that should favor the higher seeds, right? Well, uh, we ended up with a record-breaking 12 upsets, that an upset being a five-seed difference through the uh, first two rounds. The previous record was 10. And for the whole tournament, the record is 13. That's only been done twice. So we only need one more of those to tie the record this year. Pretty incredible. Abilene Christian needs to send me a uh, thank you card for picking Texas as my sleeper pick in that bracket. Same with North Texas. How do you lose so early Purdue when you're the only representative of your home state? Was that drive across town too taxing for you? The uh, other Big Ten teams so hyped all year must have been getting sick of Indianapolis too because they had been there through their conference tournament the week before. <laughs> they didn't even have to go anywhere. Only one of nine makes the Sweet 16. I still say Rutgers and Maryland didn't deserve to get in, especially over Louisville, but they both did beat Illinois during the year and they both won their first round games. We've got a theory I've been working on, guys. I know you guys love these. Power five teams who win their conference tournament like Illinois did after they go through a pretty grueling regular season don't seem to tend to win at all or even make the final four. Makes you wonder why they don't maybe schedule a little extra week of breathing room there in, in mid-March, but the mid-majors – Seems like most of their tournaments happen that first week of March. That might allow uh, the committee some more time for better seating. Loyola as an eight, BYU as a six, Florida as a seven, Oklahoma State a four when West Virginia is a three. None of those really made sense. I agree with Jay Billis when he says the media, he included, kind of gave the committee a pass this year on the seating since we were all just so glad to have a tournament in the first place. And yes, when Jay was left to pick the one upset to count on, he chose Ohio, but it should be noted that he and I both got only eight of the Sweet 16 right. Oral Roberts lost to Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Arkansas, Wichita State, and my Missouri Tigers in the non-conference season. They now have more wins over Ohio State than Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> Rick Barnes of Tennessee has now lost to all seeds, one through 11, and now a number 12, too, with Oregon State. Shaka Smart's last five NCAA tournaments, first round loss in 2014 to a 12 seed, 2015, first round loss to a 10 seed. The next year after that, he lost to an 11 seed in the first round. 2018, first round loss to a seven seed. And this year, Texas loses in the first round to a 14 seed. So, Shaka, I don't know, man. What do you think? 
Texas fans are feeling right now. Illinois fans, Ohio State fans, Michigan State fans even. Illinois, my home state, they've never won a title. Loyola has in the 60s. My Missouri Tigers, they've never been to the Final Four. This year they had nine wins over turning teams. Four of those teams ended up in the Sweet 16. So it's kind of like for UVA fans, the 2016 Elite Eight year, where we had beaten three of the eventual Final Four teams in the regular season. And nobody's ever going to remember this, but the South region in 2018, the UMBC year, that was the first ever to not advance any of its top four seeds to the Sweet 16. It's hard to see the forest for the seven foot one trees sometimes. Just turn around and shoot it, Jay. (laughs) But UVA has the perfect guy to lead them at the perfect time, which is about 99% of the battle for most programs. Backline defense, much like the 2-3 Q zone, sets you down the road of success a little bit farther than the vast majority of teams. We maybe just need to take a, a little stock of all the high-scoring teams this year and positionless players from Creighton to Gonzaga down to Oregon, USC, Alabama, and Arkansas back up to Michigan, and, of course, Villanova, who can attack in so many different ways. And, yeah, it kind of comes down to putting the ball in the basket once it's all said and done. Tribute to the fourth and fifth years. What a long, strange, mostly exhilarating trip it's been. Thomas Wolden, 10th side, I think it's worth pointing out, the only UVA player to have a 25-point game the past two seasons. So, you know, when you go 10, 12, 15 minutes without a field goal, it's kind of like playing almost half the game tied behind your back. And UVA still almost pulled it out once Reese Beekman started driving in addition. Ohio, by the way, missed seven of their 16 free throws versus Creighton a couple days after they hit 13 of 14 versus UVA. So... CTB style and pack line defense necessitate getting back to stop transition buckets, but forcing turnovers, finishing at the rim, putting pressure on the opposing D by getting the free throw line all serve to get easier shots. So you don't have to end up with that March over easy egg on your face again. And that's my soliloquy guys. What'd you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. Descent into the madness because listen, you can underline and circle and highlight and, do all those things and you still might lose, <laughs> right? You might change the entire system and play full court pressure with nothing but layups and still lose, <laughs> right? Like it is really hard to win six in a row. That is yes. always the message to me at this time of year. The first round, even if you want to throw that out, the last five are typically against, in other words, the last five wins are typically against teams in the top 25, top 30, top 40, nationally throughout the year there are exceptions to that this is this year is an exception to that but it's hard to win six in a row so yes a lot of teams have have done it more than once but a lot of teams have not so jay wright with villanova pretty exclusive company with the roy williams and the mike shusheskis of the world with multiple tournament titles there's not a whole lot of shame being in a category with one title winners right now like Calipari, Izzo, and, and, and teams like that. It is a crapshoot. Would you like to win more? Absolutely. Will Virginia win more? Possibly. Do we trust Tony Bennett to be the one to do it? Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes 100%. So, um, yeah, don't go too mad studying the madness, right? That, that's really what it boils down to. In the meantime, I guess watch and see who wins if you want to or turn your attention to football with uh, spring football now on the horizon this coming week. Until then, thanks for listening and go Hoops.